My name is Leah Summerglue. Each week on The Chat, we shine a light on the lives and careers of UTS alumni here at the 2SER studios. This week, my guest on the show is Nicholas Stewart. Nicholas is a lawyer and partner at Australia's first proudly LGBTI law firm, Dowson Turco, which is based in Newtown. He's also on the board at Rainbow Families, New Theatre and Australian Lawyers for Human Rights. Let's have a listen to his story. What made you want to become a lawyer? I think you studied commerce previously, is that right? Yeah, I did. Yeah, I started a Bachelor of Commerce and completed that at University of Western Sydney. And I never thought... um, during that degree or even in high school that I would be a lawyer, even though my dad is legally trained and qualified. Um, But I think it was when I joined the public service in about 2005 and worked with the New South Wales Commission for Children and Young People. Um, I was a policy and projects officer there and dealing with the Crown Solicitor's Office a lot and started enjoying statutory interpretation. Could you tell me a little bit more about that role? Yeah, sure. So... Um, after my commerce degree, I joined the Commonwealth Department of Family and Community Services to run a program that targeted um, vulnerable young people who are at risk of homelessness or were homeless and put them in accommodation or training to get skills and stabilise their lives. And that job then led me to take a policy job at the New South Wales Commission for Children and Young People around um, government policy and advising government on children's programs and safety. Um, And during that time, I was also the president of a homeless children's refuge in Bondi called Caretaker's Cottage. And I suppose I was um, dealing a lot with legislation at that time and writing briefings for the minister um, and had to interpret various pieces of legislation and really enjoyed that and thought, oh, I think I want to be a lawyer. And so from then you went to UTS and um, studied law. That's right. So I basically, um, I guess having worked between my commerce degree and my law degree, I had savings and I was able to fund myself through university and really um, I was lucky in that I was still living at home and I didn't have to support myself. So I quit all my jobs, and but I remained on the board of Caretaker's Cottage and did my law degree full time. Um, and Jill McHugh was the dean of law at that time. That's great. I was going to ask whether you worked while you were studying. You just went full I did, yeah. straight into it. Well, I just thought the fastest route um, to qualification was full-time study. Yeah. And um, I wanted to get good marks and, you know, get into a – or aim to get into a top-tier firm. That's great. Did you have any memories of studying at UTS? Um, I did, mainly because I think coming in uh, slightly older – I was still in my mid-20s, but I'm not fresh out of high school – it was a different academic environment for me and I found myself sitting at the front and um, probably really interrogating the subject matter a lot more than I would have if I'd come straight out of high school. You were one of those mature age students that asked lots of questions. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to put myself in that same box, <laughs> but I, I guess I was to some extent. And But I do have fond memories of meeting other like-minded people. At That's that time. great. And after you graduated, you were, obtained a clerkship at um, Minta Ellison. 
Um, for those of us who might not know, um, is, did I say that right? Minta Elson? Yeah, Minta Ellison. Ellison, sorry. For those of us who might not know Minta Ellison, uh, what kind of firm is it? Is it a big one? Sure. Is it it's boutique? I think it is um, Asia, the Asia's biggest firm right now. So we're a huge firm, um, or Minta's was, is a big firm in Australia. Um, it's got a very large partnership and... Um, I think it's still doing very well. I understand that it's still in the top um, top two in terms of employment, revenue, and the work it's doing. Um, and I joined there as a clerk in 2008. That's great. And uh, what law did you practice there? I, um, As a summer clerk, I rotated in um, private equity and capital markets, um, human resources and industrial relations, and... I can't remember the other. Is this an area that you're still practicing in with law or? Um, well, then I went on to settle um, as a graduate at Minter Ellison and I worked in intellectual property. And um, after leaving Minter's, well, during my time at Minter's, I was seconded to um, Singtel Optus, which is Australia's second largest telecommunications company. And I was a corporate counsel there and I was doing intellectual property work there. Um, and I also... Between my clerkship and my grad job at Minters, I had a stint in the legal team at Channel 9's 9MSN, and I was doing media law there. So I guess if you could say what kind of law were you doing, it was commercial and regulatory with a media focus. Um, now I'm, I, I don't quite do as much of that work. Tell me, before we, we go to what you're doing now, tell me about your time at 9MSN as a paralegal. What, what did that entail? Um, that involved me working with the general counsel um, very closely because there wasn't another lawyer in the team. It was just the general counsel and me. And um, he was quite a charismatic guy and really got me involved in projects um, at a senior level, even though I wasn't qualified. So I got to work on sponsorship deals, um, trade practices legislation, training employees on sponsorships and what you can and can't um, say in terms and conditions on online competitions. Um, we did a lot of takedown notices, copyright infringements. Um, Channel 9 obviously has a whole swathe of content that gets exploited and used un in an un unauthorised way by competitors. And also, do you have uh, a say, I guess, um, editorially in that if they needed to check something with you legally, would they would they come to you? Is that yeah, also definitely. part of it? Yeah, it is. Yeah, so um, copy checking um, in the legal team is important. I think it's probably more important now than um, it was back then. A lot of the n news reporting was Nine content um, and had already been checked by Nine's lawyers theoretically, but sometimes we had original content that I would check. Oh, and so this is 9MSN, right? So that's the online site. That's right, yeah, which is um, now wholly owned by 9 and was once a joint venture with Microsoft. Of course. Now you work at Dowson Turco. Did I say that right? That's right, yep. Dowson Turco Lawyers in Newtown. Yep. And what made you want to work with them? Well, I think um, Stacey Dowson, the managing partner there, is a good friend of mine and was at the time I was working at Minter Ellison. And I remember um, having done um, a few long nights um, of work and kind of feeling like I was married to the photocopier um, and thinking that maybe I wanted to change in what kind of law I was doing. And 
I felt like maybe there was a bigger world out there for me. Um, so I rang Stacey and she said, come and join my firm. And um, I joined her and Mary Turco in 2012. Um, and the firm has really had exponential growth since then. And your partner, oh, they, they're, they are Australia's first proudly LGBTI um, law firm, which is pretty incredible, Yeah, right? that's right. And that was quite attractive to me, I think. I think in a corporate law firm, um, sometimes your identity is not, um, you, you don't feel confident to express who you are yeah. always. And that's not, not a criticism of Mitchell Ellison, it was just the culture. And so um, joining a gay firm and with a gay clientele, um, but also servicing all communities, I felt like I was able to express myself and also pursue human rights causes related to the LGBTI community. How many, like what percentage do you think you um, of the LGBTI community um, would you represent? Um, like what percentage would be clients? Yeah, sure. I think, well, it depends on the on the group, but I think in criminal law, for example, I think we're probably 70, 30 um, gay LGBTI straight. Mm. Um, in family law, I think the team is probably 50-50 split. And then in property transactions and the general day-to-day commercial work that we do, it's a really complex mix. There's no particular group. And what law do you practice there? Sure, yeah. yeah. So I head up the commercial and crime teams. And so I'm still doing a bit of commercial work in terms of what I used to do at Minter Ellison. But um, I think getting into court, I've become um, quite an experienced criminal lawyer in that time. And so I head up the crime team and supervise criminal lawyers running complex cases. What are some of the legal issues facing members of the LGBTI community? Well, the obvious one is obviously um, marriage equality. And I say that marriage equality is important, um, not really legally, because the gay community already has rights at a common law level. But I think symbolically, marriage equality is really important to take society into the next century and assist um, members of the government workforce in dealing with our community um, in terms of our registration of births and our families and our relationships and understanding that we are normal people. Um, Marriage equality is symbolic of normality almost. I actually wanted to ask you about this, particularly in the current climate that we're in. What do you think about the same-sex marriage postal survey? What's your interpretation of it legally? Yeah, sure. Well, um, I'm pretty confident that the High Court would not find it valid. And I say that because, not really because of the moral issues with it, but because I don't think the Minister has the power under the Constitution to take money from emergency funds. Um, I think the plebiscite was knocked back twice by Parliament. And I think we also live in a representative democracy where it's members of Parliament's job to vote on law and change the law, not members of the Australian public. Um, the Constitution is pretty clear that we are a representative democracy, that we appoint, we elect people to represent us in Parliament and make law. So the postal plebiscite is, in my mind, um, it, it is not consistent with those principles. Full disclosure to our audience, it's actually, it's currently Wednesday that we're recording this in the High Court is still in session. Um, they haven't reached a decision yet. Um, they might by the time this show airs on Sunday. Could you 
explain what's happening at the moment with the postal plebiscite yep, in sure. the High Court? Sure. So there are two groups who we would say the applicants who have taken the government to the High Court and asked the court to declare the postal plebiscite invalid by reason that um, the funds that are being used to fund the postal plebiscite are being ta- taken from an emergency fund. That is that the minister has said, well, there's an emergency, we need to um, get this done and therefore I don't need parliament to approve my spending. The applicants in this case are saying that that um, is not constitutional, that the plebiscite is not an urgent issue um, that should be the subject of a minister's discretion to use those funds. Um, A further argument is that the Bureau of Statistics is acting outside of its ambit. It's um, conducting um, a statistical survey which may or may not cover the whole population and is not um, ordinarily its purpose. Um, They're the two main arguments that are being put. And why is it happening now? Why why is the government um, arguing that it has to? It is an emergency right this second. Yeah. Why not like two years ago even? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> it's an interesting it's an interesting um, discussion to be had about that because I personally don't see from a government perspective how it's urgent. Um, in in fact, the government has been sent a very clear message from the parliament that the plebiscite is not what parliament wants. Um, therefore, any urgency is a conscience vote. Um, it seems that the government has a political mandate within its own workings and f- feels that there's an urgency in terms of satisfying its membership and um, cabinet um, to put this issue to bed, and they think that the best way to do that is by a postal survey. Um, but at law, I think that's contradictory to the purpose of urgent funds under the Constitution. What outcome would you like to see from this? I would love to see the postal plebiscite shut down. Yeah. Um, I, even as a member of the LGBTI community, I'm not in any rush to get married and I'm not sure a, a public discussion about our relationships is um, going to assist our community in the long term. The damage that comes out when people um, have public discussions about whether our relationships are normal or moral um, that hurts and there's a lot of psychological damage and I think the damage that flows um, will probably sustain for a longer time. That's an interesting perspective. So is same-sex marriage important to you? Um, Look, it's important to me um, from a symbolic level and I want my community to have rights. Um, My partner and I have been together for 10 years and we got engaged even, but I don't intend to get married and we've had that discussion and I think to some extent... Um, when you can't have something, you analyse it and you look at whether it is something you want to be part of. Um, I'm not sure if it is, but I'm very much in favour of it. Um, if it does get passed as a law, same-sex marriage I'm talking about, does it get added to the constitution? How does it work legally? Yeah, sure. So the um, some of your listeners might remember that the ACT legislated um, same-sex marriage a few years ago. Um, And the government took that matter to the High Court and said that the Territory um, should not be able to legislate um, inconsistently with Commonwealth law. But what the High Court found was that the Constitution, as it is currently written, accommodates same-sex marriage and said that it's for Parliament to 
enact laws to that effect. In other words, the constitution doesn't need to change. All it needs to change is the Marriage Act and the parliament has the power to amend that. You're listening to The Chat on 2SER 107.3. My name is Leah Summerglue and I'm talking to lawyer and partner at Australia's first proudly LGBTI law firm, Nicholas Stewart. So as a gay man working in law, how do you see Australia's attitudes to homosexuality in relation to the law changing over time? For instance, in Tasmania, they were the last state to decriminalise homosexuality in 1997. It feels quite late. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It feels right. quite weird. Yeah, it does, it does. Being here now. <laughs> it does. I, I think the Tasmanian experience is not long in our past. Um, it, I think because of this national discussion that we're having right now, because the postal vote is very much on the agenda, I think I've never felt more alienated or more scrutinised as a gay man. And I think um, the coming out exercise that gay people go through, usually in high school or post-high school, is alienating in itself. But then to be comfortable with who you are and then become the subject of a national discussion um, and particularly a lot of hate speech from the alt-right or the conservative right, um, I've never felt so alienated. Um, Yeah. Wow, that's so heavy. What would you like to see? Would you, do you just want to be sort of like left alone, leave the discussion away for for a bit, or? Yeah, well, I think the discussion is really harmful. Yeah. Um, I think a discussion needs to happen in Parliament, but it um, it is more contained in Parliament. And I'm not saying that there won't be a public discussion if this comes before Parliament, but but it will be contained, and there'll be rules around what people can can say. Um, generally speaking. I just think that right now um, what I'm seeing is a lot of hate speech and um, and a small minority seems to have a very large or very loud voice. Could we talk about gay, the gay panic defence, um, which is still allowed to be used in South Australia and by definition uh, it's a legal defence used against charges of assault or murder. Um, According to Wikipedia, defendant using the defence claims they acted in a state of violent temporary insanity because of a reported psychiatric condition called homosexual panic. South Australia still has this defence. Why do you think they're still holding on to it? Mm. Yeah, I, d- I think there's probably a few answers to that, but one hypothesis is that um, South Australia is just naturally very conservative. Um it also is probably lacking a gay lobby um, that has the power or influence to change law. I think in the states where that gay panic has been removed from our law, for example, in New South Wales just um, not too long ago, I think the gay community here, the gay and lesbian community here is quite organised and we are all, or many of us, are in jobs where we do come in contact with politicians and so we're able to have that conversation. Um, Perhaps maybe in South Australia there's not such an organised community with significant influence. How does Australia compare with other countries around the world with uh, homosexuality and the law? Mm. There's a scale of, you know... There is. Well, um, it's funny you ask because um, just recently... Um, I became aware of the law in Jamaica. Well, I've always known that it's a homosexual country, uh, a homophobic country, I should say, 
Um, but even when I went and looked at their laws, um, their laws explicitly um, prohibit homosexuality and homosexual acts and provide criminal sanctions for those. Um, if you're looking at the Western world, I think we're pretty much up there. I mean, Australia has evolved um, into a um, progressive first world country with um, strong a strong constitution and effectively laws that protect human rights. Um, when it comes to gay rights, um, I think we're doing pretty well. When it comes to trans rights, I think we have way to go. Um, and I think there are some examples of where, particularly in Europe, where there are some countries that are very more, you know, up to speed with those things. More progressive, yeah. Um, oh, this might be a bit difficult, but where do you see sort of Australia's attitude um, to homosexual rights and trans rights? Um, where do you see them going in the future? Um, I think if there is going to be a positive from the gay marriage discussion is that there's more awareness of us as a community and our relationships. And I think that will only then contribute to a more positive um, evolution of our rights generally. I think um, throwing us into the public discourse, while it will have these negative effects, one positive from that is that um, the general populace is becoming more aware of us. Um, so I see Australia um, I see Australia as a beacon of light in the Pacific. I see us as a leader in the South Pacific. And when it comes to human rights, even though um, we do have um, issues with people in detention and you know, but in the in the gay context and homosexuality, I think we should be and will be a leader in that field. Well, that is positive. <laughs> um, you volunteer and work pro bono at the uh, Inner City Legal Centre. What kinds of cases do you see there? Um, the Inner City Legal Centre um, has a huge reach um, around New South Wales. And um, if I'm there in um, a capacity as a criminal lawyer, then I generally see um, people with problems with accessing justice. In other words, they can't afford a lawyer and so they go to the Inner City Legal Centre for guidance or even advocacy. And um, the the nature of the crimes that, that come in the door are those probably associated with those people who don't have access to funds. Um, for example, um, gun possession crime um i've i've often seen seen that i've seen a lot of domestic violence although i'm not suggesting that domestic violence doesn't affect the spectrum um but i think generally when you work in that capacity you do see people who don't have access to justice and aren't really informed of their general rights and why do you think it's important um for lawyers to to take on pro bono cases i think um Pro bono work is um, so important to making sure that people understand their rights and obligations. And I think the cost of legal services can be prohibitive for a large proportion of the community. And as lawyers, I think we have a duty to make sure that the people who can't afford our services still have access to justice. You've been described as a holistic lawyer. How do you interpret that? I think that... Um, means that well in my in in my view probably it means that I've got my hand in human rights and society as well as being a day-to-day -day lawyer so holistically um during the day I'm I'm fighting 
for my clients um, in various capacities. Um, but at night, I'm perhaps pursuing human rights focuses. Do you have any memorable cases that you've worked on that you can talk about? Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, I think one of the most memorable ones is a um, trans boy um, down in um, Victoria um, who contacted me because a member of the um, Christian Democratic Party who was running for parliament down there in Victoria used an image of him without his consent um, to um, push an anti-safe schools agenda. And um, he and his family contacted me, uh, my firm, for help. And we pursued um, that member of parliament for copyright infringement and stopped the use of that image. And I think that was memorable because it had a huge effect on him. Um, all of a sudden, an image that was taken of him privately for the purposes of safe schools and educating people was then being used in a different context to express hate. And the effect on him and his family was so severe and to have a role in stopping that, that was really memorable. Um, that was a pro bono case, but I suppose we've had so many um, private cases where where um, they have they leave an effect on you. Pro bono case would pro bono cases would leave a bit more of an effect. Yeah, I think they do really because of that the yeah. nature of um, where that per, where that client's coming from and the fact that they've asked for free legal assistance. Um, and I think in that case it was worthwhile, absolutely. And you're on the board um, at the new theatre in Newtown. Tell me about why you got involved with them. Well, the new theatre is um, Australia's second oldest community theatre. It's um, got a reputation um, for its social commentary and um, its exciting and interesting plays. Um, I haven't come from the arts, really, and I wanted exposure to the arts, and I saw the theatre as a really grassroots um, but professional outfit that has produced some of Australia's best actors. And... Um, they asked me to join the board and I didn't really think about it. I just joined and it's been a great experience. It's great. And tell me about your role at Rainbow Families. What is it and, and what do you do there? Sure. So Rainbow Families is um, New South Wales's main advocacy peak group for LGBTI parents. Um, we have a huge membership of LGBTI parents or people in the community who intend to be parents. And we publish guides. For example, we published a plebiscite guide to help people understand what the plebiscite was about. Um, we run antenatal classes for the LGBTI community um, using a midwife to explain, um, you know, what what being a parent means in the early days. Um, we f provide funding to um, groups around regional New South Wales to make sure that um, regional New South Wales still has access to... Um, an inclusive, safe LGBTI group. Um, we run events. Um, for example, we ran a, a one-day event just recently that focused on the law, um, medicine and science around having kids through IVF and then the law relating to surrogacy. So I see Rainbow Families as quite an important group as Australia, um, as our community grows and as our community starts having more and more children, I think there's a need for a peak group and I'm on the board there and provide legal assistance where I can. 
And it's, did you say it's statewide or Australia-wide? It's statewide, but we do have a, a reach that goes beyond the borders. So you're also on the board at Australian Lawyers for Human Rights. Could you tell me a bit about that? Yeah, sure. Australian Lawyers for Human Rights is a an association of lawyers, um, judges and legal academics from around Australia. Um, we're a very large group and we have thousands of members um, and we have a national committee that comprises various co-chairs of thematic groups. For example, I'm the LGBTI co-chair and my um, co-chair, Catherine Cramp, is based in Queensland and together we run a sub- subcommittee and we're also on the National Executive Committee of Australian Lawyers for Human Rights where we advocate um, for the gay community generally or the LGBTI community and write submissions to Parliament on legal changes and we write letters to um, members of Parliament to comment on various issues that arise. Um, we have campaigned pretty hard for safe schools, um, particularly um, since it's been removed from the national agenda. We've written to state and territory members of Parliament and encouraged them to take up state-based or territory-based safe schools curriculums. Um, but ALHR also has a refugee rights subcommittee and um, is about to run a big music event to raise money for the Refugee Advice Centre. Um, We also have a freedoms committee, which looks at um, freedom of rights and religious freedom and political freedom. Um, We have a women's and girls committee, which looks at women's and girls' rights. Um, So we're quite a busy group and um, see our role is so important to being a check and a balance when it comes to public discourse on legal matters relating to human rights. That was Nicola Stewart talking to me on the chat. That's all for the chat this week. If you like the show, you can subscribe to our podcast via SoundCloud or iTunes or from our website, which is 2ser.com forward slash the chat. The show is produced with the support of the University of Technology, Sydney and 2SER 107.3.